0: The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on Ion. Out front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. She takes a shot, she
1: scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at ionnwsl.com. today
0: episode 103 of the bowery boys case files of the nypd
1: hey it's the bowery boys
0: hey the bowery boys is brought to you by eurocheapo.com eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in europe now with hotels in new york city on the web at eurocheapo.com
1: Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With another rousing episode of the Bowery Boys' New York City history. This time round, we are tackling a history of the New York City Police Department.
0: Right. But I think, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're going to tackle this in a slightly different manner.
1: Yes. We we have a new game plan, at least for this particular topic. Because this is something I think that we'd like to come back to in future podcasts. Sure. So we've decided to frame this one a little bit like our ghost stories. And mm-hmm. so instead of telling just sort of a chronological history of the police department, we're actually going to feature four tales of heroism, of corruption. Of detective skills. And uh, these four tales we'll frame in a context with uh, with some details of the history. But we're going to primarily f- keep it in the 19th century, maybe from the year 1800 till about Pre-prohibition, And we're calling it Case Files because we're sort of
0: imagining that we're flipping through the vertical files at the police department and we're pulling out cases. And in today's case, we'll be looking mostly at officers and lieutenants and people who have worked for the NYPD.
1: But we hope that through these stories, you'll get a good sense of what the early history of the New York Police Department was like. So
0: without further ado, we're going to take you in to the Case Files of the New York Police Department. All right, then. Well, Greg, would you like to just get us started, maybe situate us? Well,
1: I mean, we're talking about the police department in New York City. (laughs) The situation in this case, well, uh, (laughs) one of the things I will say is that the situation in this is actually each story. We will be starting with a particular location, a place that you can actually stand or at least stand close to and picture these things uh, as they happen. So, But for now, before we get to our stories, we actually are going to turn back the clock all the way to the very beginnings, to yes. New Amsterdam, to just get a sense of what law enforcement was like in the early days of the colony.
0: Let's say it wasn't really robust. Shall I can we? imagine. Because, of course, in the Dutch days, New Amsterdam was a company town. It wasn't very large. New Amsterdam was founded in 1625, and the first Schoutfiskal or sheriff-prosecutor was appointed named Johan Lampo.
1: And so he was the first true person who has some semblance of keeping the peace.
0: Right, and basically that meant in those days that he was just trying to keep drunks out of the street on Sundays, which was supposed to be at least some kind of respectable day. New Amsterdam was pretty small at the time. Crime remained very low.
1: It was probably taken care of by private landowners who would take the law into their own hands. And they could fire people. I mean, if people misbehaved,
0: they could just get Mm -hmm. kicked out of town. Mm -hmm. However, drunkenness started to get kind of out of control in New Amsterdam. In fact, by Peter Stuyvesant's time, nearly a quarter of the buildings in New Amsterdam were serving some kind of booze. Which really is not very surprising when you think (laughs) about New York today.
1: Well, you know, a lot of crime today is still soaked in alcohol, so not surprising. So they did form in
0: 1658 the first sort of police force. Now, that was called the Rattle Watch. This was an eight-man crew that was established to patrol the city streets at night from 9 p.m. until sunrise. And they were called the Rattle Watch because they would walk around the streets with these sort of big wooden rattles, and I believe we talked about this in a prior podcast. In
1: the, great, in the Great Fire of 1835.
0: If they saw something like a fire, something to be concerned about, they would shake the rattles, wake up the neighbors, and the men would have to come out with their buckets, form a little brigade, and, and put out the fire. So they were mostly concerned with keeping New Amsterdam free of fires. One other responsibility that they had was to call out the hour
1: on the album. So they were also alarm clocks. And
0: they were asked to even call out the weather conditions, which I find sort of helpful. Kind of like uh, a
1: walking internet.
0: Well, it just seemed, it would be so nice if the policemen walked around yelling out the weather conditions,
1: you know? <laughs> it's cold right now, but in a few hours, it's going to be 70 and sunny. <laughs> Those would be tax dollars
0: at work. <laughs> The Rattle Watch, Greg, in some form, would really remain the basic police force in the city for the next 180 years, which so is kind of amazing.
1: past the Dutch period and... Well, into and sort the of...
0: English in 1664. Wow. The British threw out the Dutch, but they kept the Rattle Watch, and they also divided the city into six wards. Now, each ward had its own constable, who was charged with keeping the peace, and again, who was charged with keeping the drunks out of the streets. So the night watches, though, under the British were a little bit different because instead of eight men who were paid to do it, it was landowners in that ward who were expected to join the watch and take turns patrolling the city's streets in their ward at night.
1: And so this takes us up to around 1783. The British are gone, and we still have this semblance of a rattle watch, or night watch that's still happening. Exactly. This,
0: Greg, actually takes us up to our first... Case file of the NYPD.
1: Number one.
0: Actually, let's rewind 10 years to 1772. <laughs> okay. Um, in Bedford, New York, which is in Westchester County, just north of the city, Jacob Hayes was born. His father was a prominent Whig. Actually, Jacob grew up knowing such amazing luminaries as uh, George Washington. Uh, as his house was actually used as a meeting point during the war for the army. Now, Jacob was appointed to be a marshal by Mayor Verrick in 1798 mm-hmm. and was promoted to be a high constable by Mayor Livingston in 1802.
1: Now, high constable, that's a different title than the one that they previously had, correct?
0: Exactly. In each of the wards, you had a constable, and then there was one high constable who oversaw each, all of the wards. So Jacob Hayes served as high constable in New York until 1844 which is an incredibly long time for four decades he served as really the head of the let's just call it the police force
1: so, and, it, and if i'm getting my chronology here he was the only person to hold that job right for 40 years for- he was yes <laughs> and, he, and he was reappointed by each successive mayor
0: and why was he repeatedly reappointed because he was extremely good at what he did. At the very beginning, he only had six men under him. That would grow, obviously, over those 40
1: years. I mean, New York wasn't that big at the very beginning. Right. But still,
0: I mean, six men, that's just a
1: lot to handle. In
0: 1790, the population of New York was 33,000. By 1820, the population rose to 123,000. Jacob Hayes, as a detective and as a high constable, was he was quite a figure. He instilled fear in criminals and in children, too. If they, if, <laughs> if kids were misbehaving, their, their parents would say, get in line, kid, or I'll set old haze on you.
1: So he was almost an icon of the law. Yes. Even, even, he epitomized the city's right. police force.
0: Think about that period from 1800 to 1840. A lot changed in the city. And he was fearless in the way that he took on everything from petty theft to the gangs that entered the scene toward the end of his tenure some commentators say that he was the most famous man in new york city during his lifetime
1: you mean famous outside of the city and famous internationally well in the
0: city certainly Uh but also he was known in london he was known around the world because he had a particular way of fighting crime he didn't use any kind of concealed weapon he had his constable stick that he would carry around with him. And if he, let's just say that he approached a brawl or some kind of a conflagration Mm -hmm. at an intersection, he would walk up, see the offending fellow, walk up to him with his constable stick and knock his hat onto the ground. His hat? His hat. The fellow, the poor fellow, would then (laughs) bend over to pick up his hat and while he was bent over, Hayes would smash him down on the ground and then wait for his backup
1: to arrive. Well, that's a that's a low down trick. You think people would learn it after a while? But so this was his signature. Uh, it was his stick stick right. <laughs> Now, I think I understand why he was so popular. If you think about all of the leaders of New York at this time, they're all being elected one, two-year terms. Right. So, I mean, they, it's difficult for them, mm. unless it's someone like DeWitt Clinton who ends up uh, becoming the governor, right. uh, to gain much of a reputation for anything.
0: Right. And, so, and with something like law enforcement you know, and security, it was probably a comfort to know that old Hayes was still there and he knew what was going on. He had fantastic memory. He knew all the criminals. He knew the suspects. He could flip through them in his head because, again, the city wasn't that big. He also established a group called the Leatherheads. Now, that was his sort of police force. Remember, it wasn't called the police yet. Right. Police in quotes. Right. The Leatherheads were a group of guys who worked for him. They were so-called because they had these caps, like firemen's caps with the long bills in the front and back. Mm -hmm. The front, however, had been sawed off. So... It just had a long bill in the back, and the men would varnish their hats twice a year and make them kind of hard leather, kind of like copper. Well, it sounds like a helmet,
1: like a, yeah, it like was a, a helmet. sports helmet. They were very
0: distinctive. Now, it's funny that you bring up DeWitt Clinton because he also brought something to the city called the Erie Canal.
1: Uh, sure, of course.
0: That, along with immigration, meant that the city's population was exploding. With it, of course, neighborhoods like Five, Five points, points developed. Crime, of course, shot up through the roof. And old man Hayes, he had his hands full. Now, a couple little funny cases I came across. There's a, a rather petty case of the stolen suit. There was a prominent lawyer named R.M. Blatchford. Blatchford? Catchy, isn't it? R.M. Blatchford. And Esquire Blatchford had a country cottage up on Bleecker Street, which was, of course, way outside well, of the, the city. Well, the countryside yes. suburbs. And one day he returned to his cottage to find that his new suit had been stolen. Naturally, he called in Constable Hayes, who had the good sense to notice that the thief had left his own suit behind.
1: <laughs> so he just changed right there. He I mean, changed in the house no, and then nothing he to up. carry off. Sure.
0: Well, of course, Hayes flipped through his little Rolodex, his mental Rolodex, and identified that suit right away as that of a a new stranger who had just shown up in the in the town about 2 weeks previous with quote fiery red hair. And he went right out, he said to the to Blatchford, "Stay right here, I'll be back in a half an hour." Marched off, came back
1: with a thief wearing Blatchford's suit. <laughs> but this I mean, this man must have had extraordinary abilities. I mean, that's almost photographic memory that was hayes
0: and in 1820 there was another murder where a ship's captain was was found dead at a corner on water street hayes suspected that the man responsible was actually the man who ran the boarding house where this man had lived Mm -hmm. he waited for the man to come out of church uh, out of trinity church one sunday grabbed him and said you and i are going on a walk they walked up to city hall to the rotunda where the the body was being kept he walked the man dramatically, right up next to the corpse, which was being covered by a sheet, whisked the sheet off and said, have you ever seen this man before? And the border house proprietor, Johnson, said,
1: yes, I murdered him. <laughs> just like that. I mean, so he's, so he's almost like a detective, an investigator. He was, a de- yeah, he was the detective. He was all these things that, of course, we now have dozens of people do. But he was just in one, one massive, imposing person. And criminals feared him.
0: As the crime rate rose, however, the leatherheads weren't enough, and in 1829, in London, they had established an independent police force. So, in 1844, the New York State Legislature authorized the formation of the New York City Police Department.
1: Uh, um, also called the New York Municipal Police, and it was, would be officially formed on June 1st, 1845. Thank you. And so, that closes case file number one, The Tale of High Constable Hayes. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. Open that yellowed folder to case file number two. In fact, I want people to picture in their mind a very specific place, a place that we've been before on this podcast. That would be New York City Hall, those steps, those grand steps, because the action that I will describe happened on those very steps. The name of this case file is The Lamentable Police Riot of 1857. Mm. Now, as we had mentioned, the New York Municipal Police formed in 1845. Well, it didn't get off to a fantastic start, let's just say. No one knew how to really run a police organization. In fact, it took the um, reforms of a mayor, Jacob Westervelt, in 1853, so several years later, to actually invoke this radical idea of let's put our Police officers in uniforms because it had seemed sort of ridiculous to do that up to, up to this point. They seemed, uh, quote, unrepublican to put the servants of the city in livery, unquote. But well, they had had those smashing leather hats. Now they have head to toe apparel. The first commissioner here was named George Matzel. Unfortunately, already by this time, overrun with incompetence, laziness, corruption. not that effective. And so, just to make matters worse, who sweeps in but one of the most notorious mayors of New York City? I would, of course, be talking about Fernando Wood. Ah, He would be mayor for three durations, from 1855 to 1858, which was two terms. It was two-year terms. And then again in 1860. Now, we talked about him in the Union Square podcast and I'm not even going to get into the stuff that happened like in the 1860s you know when he was a sympathizer with the southern cause and wanted to secede from the union along with the south we'll put that to another time <laughs> it's not a very happy memory of, no, in, in New no. York City history but in um, this time in the 1850s he's still in the good graces with Tammany Hall mm-hmm. and in fact he was installed into office because of their power he was actually seen as a as a savior for the Democrats during this period of time still a crooked politician, but that didn't stop them back then. By 1854, he was the shining star of the, of the Democratic Party, partially because of his support in reaching out to the new Irish immigrants that were just flowing into New York at this By particular the time. Exactly. So he was elected in 1854. One of the things that he saw as a way to build and strengthen his power, he was a very modern politician. He would He would do anything to sort of gather power around him. One of the things that he understood would be the best way to do this would be to control the police force. There was a law in 1853 that had the police force under a three-man committee, which was um, a judge, the city recorder, and the mayor. So he only had one-third of the power, wanted to have that overturned, saying that he was above petty politics, couldn't get it done, but he kept finagling and doing all these different things to change his job. He actually would retain the power to hire whatever police officer he wanted to, which meant, of course, he could meet these jobs out for political favors and Mm. whatnot. In fact, when he ran for his second term in late 1856, he actually had so much power over the police that he actually used some officers as campaigners for his own re-election bid. In fact, on election day of 1856, he told the police officers to not guard the polling stations in many, many critical areas.
0: It's just it's incredible that things have gotten so much more corrupt in just a
1: couple of decades. Could you imagine if anyone said, like, you know what, let's have these polling stations completely exposed to outside influence? Because well, that's exactly what he did. He also had these little deals on the side with some of the gangs of Five Points. Mm-hmm. So, so some of the Dead Rabbit gang, for instance, would go in and um, intimidate people at the polls so they would vote a certain way. So surprise, Fernando Wood gets elected for the second term.
0: All I'm going to say is that Jacob Hayes would have knocked Fernando Wood.
1: <laughs> Hat right on the ground. <laughs> and more, I'm sure. He would have been shocked by his behavior. I mean the the police were actually by this time perceived as being more corrupt and dangerous despite some of his earlier promises. But at the same time though, as he was swept into office, there was also a huge upsurge of Republicans in state government. They took their revenge on Fernando because they saw all this going on. They knew how corrupt and how much power he was trying to obtain. So first of all, they shortened his term for just this particular term. They said, "Well, now we're just going to have the elections on odd years instead of even years. He just got elected, so that meant that like he it was a truncated term. Secondly, they seeing that the police were one of his sort of greatest weapons, they took it away from him they created a new force the metropolitan police they abolished the municipal police of course. the legislature the legislature state legislature and they created a new five-man board for the metropolitan police and it would be a combination of the police of the city of brooklyn um the city of richmond and westchester county and what had happened to the municipal force had it been dissolved The state told Fernando Wood, and they told the municipal police force that they no longer existed. They, however, thought otherwise. Fernando refused to dissolve this group because, of course, why would he? There's no reason. And then basically told all of the officers and lieutenants in the municipal, you can either go to them or you can stay here. Fernando treated them so well that two-thirds of them, in defiance of the law, stayed as the municipal police officer. Thus creating two different bodies. And the other third reported to the Metropolitans. Now, keep in mind, like they're all living in the same city, so now all of a sudden we have two police departments. We have the municipal and the Metropolitan Police Department side by side. I'm, I'm going to quote your, your favorite author here, Edward Rob Ellis, of course, who wrote of The course. Epic of New York. This created a situation where, quote, five points criminals danced in the street to celebrate the vacuum of law enforcement. Well,
0: of course, because if the police are fighting each other, who's fighting
1: the criminals? They would be fighting over, like, street corners. Like, who is the jurisdiction? And while they are doing that, pickpockets are, like, it's, it's are all over the street. It's crazy. On record, you have a metropolitan police arresting say, like, a gang member, a Bowery Boys or something, or a, or a Dead Rabbits, a, a better example. And then the municipal police coming over, and of course the Dead Rabbits have some sort of inside deal with Fernando, would come over and, like, let them go. Ugh. so they both had keys to the jail. And, and in theory, they could even arrest each other, and in fact did in certain cases. So all hell breaks loose, finally, June 16th, 1857, with the death of the street commissioner, whose name was Joseph Taylor. This was a big job, it had a lot of hiring power. The mayor used to appoint this job. Now that the Republicans had taken over and shifted things around, it was now a governor's appointment. So the governor appointed a volunteer fireman by the name of Daniel Conover. He was really excited about this job, obviously. He got up and headed over to City Hall on the very first day, and he had a small posse of people because he expected there might be a problem. He got to City Hall. It was blocked by a phalanx of municipal police right there on the steps of City Hall. Um, He tried to get in to see Wood, and he was pleading and trying to. Eventually, what they did is he walked up to the steps, they just slapped him around, and then they threw him out. That's how they treated him. Because Fernando already had somebody for the job, a guy named Charles Devlin. And not only was he a Democrat, he had paid for this job. He had paid $50,000 under the table to Fernando to obtain this job. So meanwhile, Daniel, the guy whose job it rightfully was, according to the state, ran over to a judge who was happened to be a Republican, got a a warrant for the mayor's arrest on the charge of inciting a riot. By this time, there's buzz all over the town, as you can imagine. Like, the mayor's going to get arrested? Are you crazy? And who's going to arrest him? Well, I guess it would be the certainly not the municipal police. So a metropolitan officer by the name of George Walling walked up to these officers and they all knew each other you know they probably worked each other for years so they let him pass he goes into the mayor's office the mayor's like i will not be taken is what he was quoted as saying so walling took his arm and as he grabbed him 20 of these municipal police officers Uh. swarmed out of over him grabbed him threw him out of city hall walling's friends the other metropolitans Well, they caught wind of all of this. They were outside. So they head to City Hall. There's hundreds of municipal police already standing there, guarding City Hall. The Metropolitan Police are now angry, and they're heading towards City Hall. All of a sudden, a huge riot as they attack each other, swinging clubs and fists. It is actually one of the largest riots in New York City up until this time. And it was comprised completely... ...of uniformed policemen. I mean, that's unthinkable. It was as bloody as an actual battle. There were dozens of injuries, including one man who was crippled for life. Luckily for the Metropolitans, there was a passing state militia, like, on its way up to Boston. Uh, A few of them ran, grabbed them, and so they they were able to quell the violence... Wait, the um,
0: state militia just happened
1: to be walking by? They, they literally happened to be walking, passing through, if oh, you will. Back in the day when state <laughs> militias just paraded about and um, on their way to Boston. And they actually, Fernando Wood was finally arrested for content. Believe it or not, he was never formally charged and he only spent a few hours in prison. The metropolitans and the municipals were still on the streets. This didn't resolve anything. In fact, there was a huge amount of gang violence. In July 4th and 5th of 1857, the Bowery Boys and the Dead Rabbits had their f- infamous altercation around here, where, where almost 10 people died, and there were dozens of injuries and thousands of dollars worth of property. They were just ineffective. Um, you know, And this really scared a lot of people. They were like, is this how it's always going to be? Mm. I mean, how is this going to get resolved? I mean, the the city couldn't take much more. Luckily, however, the higher New York courts upheld the Metropolitan Police Act. Wood eventually disbanded the municipal police. So by the end of the year, Metropolitan Police, that's the official force of the city. And whatever happened to Wood? Well, he obviously didn't get elected that year. This was a little bad, but believe it or not, within he would come back strong. Just two years later, people have very short memories. And then after after being mayor, he uh, was elected to the House of Representative, and, and where he served until his death, until eighteen sixty eight. It's it's an incredible political life. Amazing the kind of things that he was able to survive. Corruption, of course, would be rampant through the police department. Still, there would be this sort of cycle of mass corruption. A little reform, the reform would collapse, more corruption. A little reform would go back and forth and back and forth. This back and forth, this sort of uneasiness, this sort of thuggery that the that the police department would sometimes employ, would open the city to a lot of violence, unfortunately. In the 1890s, there was some serious efforts to try to clean up some of this corruption. In 1894, there was what was called the Lexo Committee. This exposed a lot of corruption. A year later, with the hiring of a reformist police commissioner by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, um, this also cleared away a lot of it. But again, it would creep back into the system. There would be still graft and corruption and it would be a fact of life, even as we arrive into the 20th century. So that's sort of the... So is your file so, shut? So that's how my file sort of trails off. It just sort of leaves right. this uncertainty of irresponsible behavior. I mean, there's right. obviously... With the hope of reform. Exactly. But what's great is that this system is able to foster legendary cops.
0: You mentioned, of course, the gangs, the Bowery Boys, the Dead Rabbits, the vice that was developing in the latter half of the 19th century. You didn't mention something else that was developing, and that was organized crime, Mm -hmm. which, which was plaguing the city as a sort of side effect to the waves of immigration that was coming into New York. Immigrants would arrive, many times couldn't speak English, set up shop in their neighborhoods, say, Little Italy, or the Little Italy in Harlem.
1: They would go from sort of neighborhood gangs that would be based on certain locations to sort of citywide gangs that would sometimes be based on ethnicity.
0: And even within ethnicity, too, you could break it down by dialects or... Break it down by region, say, of Italy, where somebody came from. So with that as a setting, I'm mm-hmm. going to crack open my third case file. Mm-hmm. You know, Greg, today, I walked down over my lunch break to Lafayette and Kenmar. Can you identify that location? Okay, there's a yes. little yes, there's that Mexican radio restaurant there's in cafe fa- select.:
1: In fact, the, the old police station is it's just, just a block a away. block yeah. away is right on Center Street. Right
0: and grand. So, just to block up and over from that, at uh, the corner of Lafayette and Cleveland Place is a little triangle. Uh, it's recently been renovated. Well, that triangle is called Petrosino Square. Petrosino. Petrosino. Let me tell
1: you about Joseph Petrosino. So case file number three Petrosino. Exclamation point.
0: Giuseppe Petrosino, in fact, was born in Padula, Sicily, in 1860. His family moved to the U.S. in 1873 when he was 13 years old. As a young man, he actually stood in Little Italy outside of the police headquarters shining the shoes of officers who were inside. He wanted, in fact, to be a police officer, but he couldn't because he was too short. Did you know that there was a, a height that you had to be? But five foot seven, I think, was the minimum height and
1: how tall was he five-foot-three so he was just four inches too short which is kind of a lot and you can't you can't remedy that with good shoes no can't happen
0: he also had kind of a thick accent which really didn't win him over in this particular time period, especially when he was dealing with an almost all-Irish force. Yeah,
1: the the new Italian immigrants were sort of the lowest rung as they were coming in, and the uh, the Irish who had been here for many more decades were more established. So
0: in 1878, he became a city sweeper. He then became the foreman of the sweepers and was organizing his men, sort of drilling them. He had a good sort of leadership quality to him that was recognized by police captain Alexander Clubber Williams. Mm-hmm. Now, You can imagine with a nickname like (laughs) Clubber Clubber, what he built his reputation on. He knew how to get things done, and of course, brutality was one of the methods that he employed. Brute force, rough and tumble. Well, he took on a street-cleaning project, this Clubber Williams, which put him into contact with Joseph Petrosino. He liked him a lot, and he brought him into the force in 1883 as a policeman. He might have been short, but don't forget, he had such a knowledge of Italian dialects and Sicilian dialects in particular at a time when the police department was trying to think, well, you know what? Maybe sending a bunch of Irish guys undercover to try to crack down on the mob isn't the most efficient way to go about it. (laughs) So maybe we can send somebody who can actually speak the various dialects as Joe can. Seems,
1: Seems a natural conclusion to make today.
0: But this was an innovation at the time. So in 1890, he was promoted to a detective. And Roosevelt, as you mentioned, 1895, promoted him to be a detective sergeant. I'm glad to see him rising so quickly. Oh yeah, well by 1900 he had actually been kind of media savvy himself. He, when he was about to make a big bust, wouldn't you know it? He just happened to have the newspaper men there with cameras, ready to shoot. But he also wasn't afraid to put on a disguise. To go undercover as, say, a homeless person, uh, as a panhandler, as a a person working in the tunnels as a recent immigrant. He would just go right in.
1: It's intriguing. I didn't realize there's like a masquerade involved in police work. <laughs> now, during
0: this period, though, in the 1890s, as I mentioned, the organized crime was growing, including the mafia. Now, the mafia was actually specific group, but the police reporters kind of got a little lazy with how they distinguished between the various organized crime groups, and so they just called everybody mafia. So in the 1890s, interestingly, in Italy, the government crusaded against the mafia and organized crime, and they put Sicily under martial law for two years. During that time, a lot of mafiosi immigrated to the Escaped, United States, right, and came to New York, so there was a big influx of leadership, it really bolstered the leadership. <laughs> Great, in New York City. we love
1: our leaders here.
0: One of the most famous of these leaders was named Lupo the Wolf. Uh, mm. He moved to the U.S. after killing somebody back in Sicily. Now, Lupo was a counterfeiter, and he was also partnered with a man named Giuseppe Morello. Now, together they killed. They had but what was referred to as a murder factory up on 107th
1: Street. Oh, I don't like that.
0: No, they killed as many as 60 people up there. And the Lupo Morello gang was responsible, actually, for the murder one day of a man who was found stuffed into a barrel at the corner of 11th and A, which is a great place to get brunch
1: <laughs> now. but. But back then it was a place to dispose bodies, apparently.
0: The man had been a police informant. Now, Petrosina was able to trace the murder by tracing the actual barrel back to the murderer. But
1: that's like creative, solid detective work. I love reading about like the early these early instances of detective work. It's fascinating. Yes. So through all these situations, he's making the name for himself, both publicly and then within the force, right? Absolutely. In
0: 1905, actually, he was named the leader of of a new elite five-man Italian mafia squad within the New York Police Department. Sounds dangerous. On the side, I just wanted to note that he also was involved in an extortion case against famed Italian tenor Enrico Caruso, who was being blackmailed when he was here performing at the Metropolitan Opera House.
1: And while he was staying at the Plaza Hotel.
0: Yes, and and Caruso didn't actually want to get involved with the police and everything, but no, Petrosino convinced him to, and uh, and they nabbed the criminal. He was also investigating the in an Italian anarchist group that he believed was responsible for the assassination of King Umberto I of Italy. Now, while he was investigating this, he found that the same group was looking into assassinating President McKinley when he was set to visit Buffalo. Well, he reported this uh, to the White House, and McKinley basically shrugged it off. As we will remember, on September 6, 1901, McKinley was assassinated in Buffalo.
1: And Theodore Roosevelt
0: became president, the former police commissioner. His former boss. So Petrosino's star is shining bright at this period. Well, in 1907, Congress passed a law allowing for the immediate deportation of any immigrant who was found to have hidden a previous criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. So that meant, of course, that you've got all these mob bosses in New York. If you could prove that some of them had records back in their homeland and had lied about it, well, you could send them back home.
1: Well, how brilliant. All you would need is a connection to the Italian government, or, I guess, maybe send someone over there. or well,
0: like maybe Petrosina, who spoke the language. So Petrosina went in 1909 on a top-secret mission. He was sent by Theodore Bingham, the police commissioner, to Sicily to check out, you know, these police files and to find out if any of these people had, had records. Wouldn't you know it that Bingham actually also leaked this story to the New York Herald? Oh. Why he would do this... Well, he was forgetting that the New York Herald also had a Paris edition. So the story came out in the Paris edition, which made its way to Italy, was read by these very mafia bosses, and it became very quickly known that Petrosino was there. Before he even got there. Before he even got there. Now, Greg, remember Lupo the Wolf?
1: How could I forget?
0: Well, he asked, in the meantime, another mob boss named Vito Cascioferro, or Don Vito, who had also lived in New York We won't get into his record right now, but let's just say he returned to Italy the big boss. He Mm. controlled all the crime. He controlled the politicians. He was the big man. He was elegant. He was dashing. Lupo and Don Vito were friends. Lupo got in touch with Don Vito and said, Petrosino's visiting. Bump him off for me. Wipe him out. On March 12th, 1907, Don Vito left a dinner party at a politician's house, mind you. (laughs) took a carriage to Piazza San Marina where Petrosina was waiting. What was he waiting for? He was waiting for a trolley. Maybe he was waiting for an informant to come along and help him out on the case. Don Vito walked right up to him and shot him in the face and then returned to the dinner party.
1: (sighs) Do, how do we know that he was the mur- murderer?
0: Well, we don't know for a fact because he was never truly convicted of this. They brought him in, but then he was released. it's uh, crazy. They never actually got Don Vito on any of like of the dozens and dozens of murders that he was charged with. So,
1: I mean, this must have been obviously very tragic for the New York police force. I mean, how did they respond? What happened?
0: Well, he was given a hero's funeral back in the city, 250,000 people attended his funeral, and today Petrosino is honored in that square named Petrosino Square at Lafayette and Kenmore Street. Please visit it. And when you walk by, think of this man.
1: And as an added bonus, the New York Police Museum, which is downtown almost near the Staten Island Ferry, they have a special exhibit just to Petrosino, and they have artifacts from this particular time. Walk through Petrosino Square Go to the police museum and get the full story of this guy. So the final case file, case file number four, I like to call Murder at the Metropole. This story to me is an archetype of gangster stories. In your mind as I tell the story, picture all the gangster movies that you've seen in in the 30s and 40s. This will take place in the 1910s, so it's earlier. But all those things that you saw as a kid when you watched these movies keep that in mind we're going to start the story at a corner that's very vibrant and it's the middle of times square it's at 147 west 43rd street just Mm -hmm. just right there at the heart at the hotel metropole this is no longer there downstairs they had a cafe where people were drinking and the story takes place on july 16th 1912 Talking like one or two o'clock in the morning, that crazy hour when streets are filled with drunk people. This is definitely a different kind of Times Square back then. So you had prostitutes wandering around these at these hotels that were very popular. There was a man sitting at one of these tables inside. His name was Herman Rosenthal. He was an out of luck gambler, living a hard luck life, kind of a low life type. He was sitting there. He was drinking. He was actually drinking something called a horse's neck which is bourbon ginger ale, with a little lemon twisted. You should try it. He nee. was drinking one he was drinking one of these, darting around. People were looking at him. They knew who he was. He was a little infamous. He started patting his forehead with a silk handkerchief. He was there because he had some information that was going to take down some major police officers in the police force, connecting them with organized crime. In fact, he was there to meet a reporter. Even at this late hour, he had something that he needed to to tell this reporter. Well, he got called to the very front of the cafe. So he got up. He had a cigar in his mouth. He walked up to the front. The bright lights of Broadway, I mean, it, these huge arc lights. You could barely, he could almost see it a squint as he was walking out. And he could just barely make out these four figures who approached him. But before he could react, before he could do anything, these four figures, these men pulled out these guns. And they all shot at once. And they riddled this man with bullets. Ugh. Collapses, a huge puddle of blood on the on the sidewalk there's a huge crowd and the four men escape in a taxi cab that's waiting to take them away but the cab couldn't pass the pedestrian only street (laughs) oh back then it was much easier to get through times square than it is today Uh. so who could have done this i mean He was not a respected figure. He had a lot of mob connections. He also knew some politicians. He was actually indebted to Big Tim Sullivan, who was a Bowery thug turned the boss of Tammany Hall in this period of time. But this hit was not authorized by gangsters. It was authorized, or as was alleged, by a respected member of the New York Police Department. So this is the story of Charlie Becker, the only New York police officer to be put to death for crimes. Now, Charlie was, I mean, like, like many, he was, a, he was a former bouncer down in one of these Bowery pubs, these taverns, and he worked his way into an, a job as a police officer. He was six feet, 200 pounds, very big chunk of a man, very robust. He actually made a little bit of a name for himself early in his career in 1896 with the arrest of a prostitute who happened to be in the company of one novelist by the name of Stephen Crane, of the red badge of courage, mm-hmm. amongst many great things that he wrote in his short life, you know they would they would catch these prostitutes and no one would testify on their behalf, but Crane actually came up to testify on the on the behalf of this woman that he was with. So this all made the newspapers. It actually damaged Crane's reputation more than it did Becker's. Well, sure, um, um, so. Flash forward to 1911. He was moved. He moved up the ladder just like Petrosino. Um, he's not as noble a man as Petrosino. Clearly, he ended up becoming the head of one of three. Sp- special squads, special squads, that actually pointedly went around to break up illicit establishment. What they would basically do is they would crash gambling dens, like they would just storm the places, beat up on all all the gangsters, and then sometimes they would even take axes to the doors, like this very dramatic... Of course, they wouldn't do this to all the dens, only the ones that were not known and protected by the police themselves, of course, through forms of... Honest kickbacks. graft and kickbacks, right. and all these, you know, the local officers looking the other way. Because if you
0: weren't paying the mob for protection, and the mob was probably paying the police, <laughs> you were paying the police for protection. Or you weren't paying anybody, and then you went out of and, business.
1: And out of business by either the mob or the police. It's ridiculous. Becker was actually more, even more deeply involved than the other cops. He actually constructed like a vast extortion racket over his jurisdiction, pocketed all the money. In fact, enough money that he actually started construction on a lavish home up in the Bronx. He would a little bit later in his career. On just a policeman's salary. Uh, right, on just a policeman's salary. I mean, no one questioned this until much later. No, Becker and Herman Rosenthal knew each other. And this is how the connection worked. Rosenthal opened his own casino in November of 1911. It was at 104 West 45th Street. So also in the Times Square area. Promptly closed by the police. He He wanted to reopen. It was his livelihood. In order to do so, he needed some police protection so believe it or not it reopened in march of 1912 because becker had actually agreed to put in a little loan at this gambling den for the the police officer the police officer loaned this the gambler card shark gambler in exchange for one-fifth of all the profits that would come out of that particular gambling house and of course he would promised not to raid it for some reason, though, very soon after that, Becker kind of backed out of the deal and closed it anyway. Rosenthal was furious. He felt betrayed. But the other part is he, because of this relationship with Becker, he knew all about all, the, all of Becker's secrets. He knew all the things that Becker did. Um, he was going to break it all open. And so he began talking to a reporter from the New York World.
0: One of Joseph Pulitzer's papers that was into saucy
1: stories. Right, right. So his tragic demise here at the Hotel Metropole, um, when he was murdered, Becker, actually, that, that very day, was passed out at home. He had spent the entire night watching prize Fighting down at Madison Square Garden, back when it was actually down at Madison Square. But he would soon become the center of the scandal. The gunmen, these four men who had actually shot him, would be captured And everyone would just point upwards. You know, they would be like, well, I was just hired by this person and this person. It would end up going all the way up the ladder to Becker, as if Becker had been the one himself almost to pull the trigger in this particular case. In the 19th century, this kind of connection would almost be shrugged off. But, you know, New York's in in the throes of this reform corruption cycle someone needed to be an object lesson for this so of course this is another one of those trials of the century cavalcade of very bizarre witnesses that are getting up on oh, the you stand can just imagine the characters well, are of these, were hauled in. all of these names that you mentioned earlier get, um, so amongst prime among them the, like the prime witness was this man named bald jack rose he was a gangster that worked at Rosenthal's casino. He was scary looking, completely bald, pale skin, no eyelashes, and would dress very severely. On top of that, four gunmen, they also testified. The gunmen's names were Jip the Blood, or rather, the, the nicknames, Jip the Blood, Lefty Rosenberg, Whitey Lewis, and Dago Frank. Now, the thing is, is that they were actually referred to by nicknames in the court, which, I mean... Completely unacceptable. In the court documents. In the, yes. He's for I, their name. And, and, you know, in all of this, it just seemed like it was pointing to this grand c- conspiracy. Apparently, how this had happened, as they claimed, Becker wanted to get rid of Rosenthal. So what he did is he went to one of the top heads of organized crime in New York at this particular time, a guy named Big Jack Zellig, who mm-hmm. was the head of the Monk Eastman gang. He talked to Big Jack about having this guy wiped out. Zelig then went to Bald Jack Rose, and Bald <laughs> Jack Rose hired the four gunmen. That's how it sort of was mapped out, supposedly. The evidence is largely circumstantial it's been, and derived from all these witnesses who are all criminals. A major problem is Becker could not testify on his own behalf because due to the litany of corruptions that he was completely guilty of he would have to confess all of those to clear his name and that he couldn't do that because it was also connected to all these other police officers it would have pulled everything oh apart word. like a like a piece of string in a sweater it would have un- completely unraveled so he never took the stand he basically never t- stood a chance becker was charged with murder and sentenced to die by the electric chair up at sing sing he spent a couple years trying to appeal his case I mean, he fought tooth and nail Here's what happens to everyone in this story. The four gunmen, all four of these guys, Jip and Lefty and Whitey and Dago, well, they would all be sentenced to death. Big Jack Zellig, because people were afraid that he would talk because he really didn't know what happened. Well, he was, in October of 1912, he was riding the 2nd Avenue trolley. And when they got to 13th Street, a man came right up to him, put a gun to the back of his head and just assassinated him right there on the trolley. Ball Jack Rose... Who had actually won immunity for his testimony? he went off to have a little bit of a career going to churches and decrying gambling and and all these things as something you shouldn't do Wow he- so of a m- motivational speaker yes. Becker's wife was very distraught after the trial. Of course, she was pregnant during huh. the whole trial. There were some serious complications. She had to deliver the child via a cesarean, which was an incredibly dangerous procedure in 1912. The press found out about this, and it was seen as if like she was being so selfish because she chose her own life over the baby. And so she, then she was ripped apart in the press. Literally. <laughs> Literally. Literally. So Becker was sent to death row up at Sing Sing. The wife tried desperately. She even went up to the governor on the day before he was to be electrocuted. Unfortunately, the governor happened to be Charles Whitman, who was the district attorney on Becker's trial. So he just shrugged the whole thing off. So July 30th, 1915, they strapped Becker to the chair. (sighs) Given the imperfection of this procedure, it took 10 minutes to die An incredible, painful death. His name was never cleared. However, a lot of people believe... I mean, if you just look at this evidence, it's it's not hard to think that maybe he was not guilty of everything that laid upon him. The story of Charlie Becker almost closes the book on a certain type of corruption that's happening in the New York Police Department. Um, I mean, there would be more corruption, of course, in the future. There's corruption even today. But this would sort of, like, be the end of an era. There would be a sea change to government in general, which would discourage this kind of widespread graft and corruption that would happen. As for the history of the New York City Police Department, after 1915, 1920... We'll have to explore all this in another podcast and another set of case files. And so we closed the file on Becker with that sad note. Yes. Tragic tale. I mean, to end it that way. But so those are our case files of the early history of the New York Police Department. Visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We'll have some of these early pictures, some of these famous faces, of course, like Becker and Fernando Wood. And hopefully I'll find one of Hayes, a drawing at least. Well, there's a painting of Hayes
0: (laughs) and Petrosino, of course, or portraits.
1: Have some information on the New York Police Museum that you can visit and other places that we've mentioned in the show. That's
0: BoweryBoysPodcast.com. You can also find us
1: on Facebook. So thank you very much for listening to our tell, flipping to the stories with us. We release you now. Ah, you're free to go. And we hope that you have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.